Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. We're going to see the premiere of a new nervous system piece um, called Two Wrenching Departures. And uh, I guess originally in the schedule, um, Ken was going to do a piece uh, that he had worked on on and off called An American Dance. And about a, a month before the retrospective began, uh, Bob Fleischner and Jack Smith, who people will, will know from Ken's earlier films, um, both died within a few days of each other. And Ken decided to um, do a piece using, using footage from his earlier films that he had um, photographed of, of them. And I think, it's an, I think it's the first nervous system piece where Ken is working with footage that he photographed. Um, for people who don't know the nervous system, you can turn around and see the projectors, which are two analytic 16-millimeter projectors. There's our artist and his collaborator, Florence Jacobs. <laughs> and uh, it's basically two analytic projectors um, that work with this propeller, which spins um, in front of them. And what you're seeing on the screen um, is an alternation between two images. Um, and this propeller just makes sure that, that there's only one image on the screen at a time. And the images are usually um, about a frame or two out of sync. So for people who haven't seen it, it's a, um, it's a kind of unprecedented and unique effect. And Ken will explain it afterwards. So the world premiere now of Two Wrenching Departures. There's two projectors that are analytic projectors, meaning that they are capable of uh, freezing on a frame and advancing or going back one frame at a time or on a pulse. Um, and um, I have two identical prints. In this case, I'm using quite a bit of film for, for this kind of work. So I, I usually only use a, a few feet of film. And this is actually uh, uh, almost 200 feet. So that's a lot. And uh, Normally, that would go through a projector what, in about eight minutes, a little less. Um, actually, uh, four, about five minutes. And um, I'm varying the, um, the distance between frames. If I, whenever I show the identical frame on screen, uh, you just have a still image. As soon as I go out of, out of sync, one or more frames, other things, other kinds of movements are possible. Actually, there's even movement possible with, uh, with a frozen frame. We had no accidents. Very often, my, my variations come from the sky falling down, but this, this didn't happen. The propeller is what creates the intermittent motion, usually blocking off one image and releasing the other. And uh, so then you get you know, these kinds of movements. But um, uh, much more is possible and much more is done than, than simply a simple change from one to the other, which was the first way I did it. I used a shutter. I just went back and forth and blocked off one image and released the other one. But uh, over here, there's uh, many other variations besides a simple alternation. Um, there's actually, um, in one of the pieces uh, where Jack frees the slave, you can see these superpositions at the same time. So there's, there's really a lot of, a lot of, variation that comes from the placement of the images over each other and also uh, the, the height of the, uh, of the propeller. It's on a tripod, which enables me to move it up and down. And that, that means that the beams are hitting different places in the propeller and different effects are derived from that. 
And the two shapes, um, the middle shape introduces a flicker, and the flicker allows a lot of different phenomena to come into, uh, come into play. The outer, uh, you can see there's like three blades on the outside. There's two openings on the inside and three openings on the outside. And when I don't want flicker, and I simply want a rather you know, smooth, uh, moving back and forth from image to image, I, use, I lower the propeller and use the outside. It's not for the rhythmic effect of flicker, but uh, for, uh, from a whole host of uncanny visual phenomena that come into play, uh, including sometimes some very, very powerful spatial, I mean, depth uh, images, and a whole other, this kind of rolling, like when Jack was you know, on the ground, and you know, this kind of rolling uh, motion comes from using uh, the, the flicker, but at a certain place in that propeller. Yes. Uh, tell, tell us the soundtrack of this was uh, actually cast in. Oh, just at the very end. But, uh, but, but that film, uh, we, we learned of it years ago, and uh, it was impossible to see it. It's uh, uh, an early Raymond Novaro sound film, like 1929-30, uh, when Myrna Loy, you may recognize her voice. And um, a, f- a friend of ours actually went like, from New York to Pittsburgh because... Bizarrely, he discovered it was going to be on television in Pittsburgh. And he went down and, and taped the soundtrack. And at some point, we never saw the film, but I just knew it from the soundtrack and walked around humming, you know, day and night. And then uh, just within, within days, if, if, if that many uh, uh, days after Jack died, The Barbarian with Raymond Navarro played on cable. And so we got the whole, you know, the whole film and the whole soundtrack and then I uh, condensed it to this. So there are two films? No, it's just um, this one Raymond Navarro film, The Barbarian, which must have all by itself brought on um, the code single-handedly. <laughs> it's really hot stuff, amazing. But you see, this is, um, this is Jack's fantasy. You know, <clears throat> he was deep into this, and sadly, the things that he got to care for with that woman, what's her, Jack's uh, woman, Maria Montez. Uh, those 40s images, you know, those 40s films are really domesticated, safe versions of this. This was the hot stuff. And this is picking up on the chic, which is also about miscegenation, you know, hot, rape. And, you know, really, at some point in Jack's life, blew his mind, and that's where he stayed. So how much of Jack do you have on a body of tape? How much of Jack? Do you have a lot? Oh, no. I just, uh, we, uh, we borrowed the, um, the tape recorder. We didn't have a tape recorder, neither he nor I, uh, from someone who became very well-known afterwards, um, Renee's, what was Renee's fabulous name also? Well, uh, Mario Montez. So Renee had this dinky tape recorder, and... Uh, uh, we had, Jack and I had not been working together for a while, but it became possible to make um, uh, some money came through from Jonas Mikas, from somebody else with money, uh, to make um, uh, final prints of Little Snaps of Happiness and Blonde Cobra. So when the money was available, I contacted Jack, and we had this truce, and uh, in about two days' time, we, we you know, did all the sounds of Blonde Cobra, and, and this, I originally 
used in Blanc Cobra and then uh, realized it was just too much for the film. The film went out of proportion. And it's hard to think of that film, a, a concern with proportion with Von Cobra, but uh, there was. So here it is, the first time uh, it's, it's gone public since, uh, I guess, the first screening, like 1963. Uh, the first screening of Blanc Cobra. Yes. So this, did you construct this piece in the wake of the jacket? Right, and um, that, that's what the notes are about. I'm just, uh, in, in the notes, I'm not explaining the piece, I'm just saying something about these two <coughs> people that died uh, recently. And um, for people that may not know Boff Leisner, he was the, the rich American in the beginning of the film that blunders into this dangerous territory. The soundtrack is um, The um, Triumph of Aphrodite by Carl Orff. And it's the third section of uh, this um, three-piece, which most people know by uh, Camina Buranus, like one of the sections. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. So it's The Triumph of Aphrodite. And then um, when Jack is uh, uh, advancing on the the benches, uh, I always thought to use Wagner for that. But this was more appropriate, and there was somebody almost as uh, anti-Semitic. uh, no, his name is uh, Schmidt, Florent Schmidt. And this is, again, appropriate to Jack. It's um, the, um, the tragedy of Salome. So from the... I'm glad you asked. You know, from the triumph of Aphrodite, we have the tragedy of Salome. <laughs> All these underground uh, meanings that uh, only the people who put these things together usually know. This might be personal, but I'm just curious what happened with your relationship with Jack. Well, uh, uh, I, uh, one summer, in the summer of 61, I tried to, as, as I used it in the summer, I tried to get a summer job and earn some money. And I had gone up to Lake George, and then uh, I wasn't finding anything where I could save any money, and I went finally all the way over to uh, Boston to see friends and uh, earn some money washing the windows of this um, little museum they had. Um, and then went over to uh, Provincetown because I, um, I just sort of had given up on earning money and went to Provincetown to, um, to uh, be able to use uh, my uh, old um, painting teacher's studio. Uh, Hans Hoffman had a, a barn that he allowed people to use. And, and even though he was retired, he would come around and give spontaneous uh, crits. So, and um, when I got there, the first day, I had one dollar and made a marvelous contact to whom I've been married, you know, for, since 1961. And uh, uh, things looked very, very good. We're having, you know, my, my colleague. Uh, things looked great, and so I uh, sent Jack a postcard. Um, living with two women, you know, come up is great. You know, uh, they've got the money. <laughs> they, were, they were earning money doing portraits or trying to charcoal portraits in Provincetown. So Jack hitched up. This is, I'm, I'm giving you too long a story, I'm afraid. Jack hitched up with uh, this huge theatrical um, crate, what's it called? Uh, yeah, huge wardrobe. He hitched hike with his huge wardrobe 
uh, box uh, full of costumes because I, uh, I had my camera. And so we were going to film. And uh, it worked out very, very well for quite a while. And uh, we, we did this, um, this theatrical spectacle called uh, the Human Records Review. And until the local police, which were tied up with the Catholic Church and their local powers, the prophecy sounds very strange, and uh, the uh, church and the, and the police stopped us, but we were performing on the beach and things like that, and they even stopped us there. Um, and we were writing every day. You know, we were doing like lousy jobs, you know, a minimum wage, 65 cents an hour jobs. But we were writing together and doing this kind of thing of tossing lines back and forth. I would write, I would say something right down, and he, Jack would, it's like a ping pong game. And at a certain point, um, Jack, who I sort of thought um, finally, or it was easy to think that he was just asexual. You know, I've since learned there's no such thing. Uh, uh, the examples, I think, of, of uh, you, know, you know, people coming out in Provincetown moved him to do that, you know, to really make a, an overt statement. And um, something happened. Uh, it was very resentful of some... I mean, I don't, it had nothing to, I don't think it had anything to do with jealousy, but it, it was as if um, Florence and I were getting together at him, you know, and uh, he became nasty. And uh, after the summer, I uh, went over to, to pick up the stories so I could, you know, he had the stories, or some of them, I think he had the stories, and I asked them, you know, I'd, I'd like to make a copy for myself, because things were like really fell apart that summer. I mentioned the stories because after a while, instead of just taking the line and, and working with it, he would appraise the, the line. So it made for a very inhibited uh, atmosphere. It, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't fun anymore to write with him. And uh, the stories were really, you know, fun. Um, well, anyway, after pursuing Jack, going back and forth to, I think it was Forster he was living on, uh, one day he finally opened a door and uh, gave me a handful of ashes. These were the stories. So that was the last time um, I chose to step into that one. Except, as I say, we, there was some tremendous kind of artistic discipline that he was capable of. And when it came time to finally, uh, you know, to be able to make the, t the track for Blonde Cobra, I mean, there he was. And we did it. But we couldn't keep it up afterwards. So it, was, it had been really a tremendous... Um, I guess uh, in, in large part we, we were each each other's college education, and uh, I hope you saw you know Star Spangled Death. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of fun. No money. What's interesting is that Jack was the one who was able to keep jobs. I'll, I'll never get over it. I was always fired. I couldn't I couldn't get a job or I'd be fired immediately, and Jack would somehow be able to pass as a normal person. <laughs> Yeah. He's a good actor. Where, where did you meet Jack? Through Bob Fleischner. Uh, I, I got out of the Coast Guard and, and went to CCNY, had a film institute, to learn something about putting a fil film together. And uh, met Bob there, who was the only person alive <laughs> in that place that I met <clears throat> that had a sense of humor. And I was very zany. <clears throat> and... Uh, Bob was the only one capable of, um, you know, b breaking into a smile or actually participating in hijinks. 
And then he told me about uh, Bob, uh, about this guy Jack Smith uh, that, he, that he'd met in another class, and that Jack had filmed this uh, this Oriental spectacle in a loft in on 26th Street, and uh, we met soon after that. We lived just a couple blocks away, and I didn't get him at first. I thought he was silly. Uh, the girl I was going with. Um, said, no, this guy's okay. He's really very funny. And uh, as I've told people before, one day I, I, I was living on Fifth Street on uh, just the second floor, and one day I'm working inside the house, and I hear this voice, and it's Jack's voice, and Penny can do his voice very well. <laughs> and I go to the window, and there's Jack down there, you know, six foot three, whatever he is, six foot two, and says, uh, you know, Kenny, can you come down and play? You know, where people are in early 20s. It was, just, uh, it was just done so well. You know, Kenny, can you come down? Kenny, can you come down and play? And I, uh, I was charmed. But it was, it was so good. I mean, it just cracked me up. Jack lived uh, just a couple blocks away, I think maybe 2nd Street, in a, in a basement which was very neat, but uh, also had potted plants and it looked like uh, a Dan Duryea movie, you know, from post-war. That was his fantasy. And across the hall, if you can call it a hall, really just a, um, a, another basement apartment right next door, were uh, two uh, uh, very, very overt, uh, overt homosexuals, especially one of them was really a grand queen. And uh, it's, it's something to say. They were poor and they were black and they were, uh, they were acting out. And they, were, they were like, you know, releasing themselves and made a huge impression on Jack. It was very, very... Very impressed by them, very respectful. So uh, uh, more often he was putting people down, but he was, he was very impressed at, at that time how they could live their lives. They could live it. You know, they had nothing, they had no hope, whatever, and so they could just live. And, and it made a big impression on him. Are you uh, uh, experimenting with color? No, I, I, I've experimented with color, but I, I, uh, people ask this very often, but I, I haven't uh, gotten to anything I'm really satisfied with. So Jeff, he already made film before he had Yes, he had um, built, you know, a, like a, a, a two-brick-high pool in this loft on 26th Street, 29th Street, whatever. And uh, he had somehow given the impression of water in this thing. And he had some poor, very unfortunately homely girl playing his Maria Montez projection. And... Um, the movie was, uh, it was uh, costly, it was elaborate, I mean, in a, in a certain way, for people without money. Uh, it was, it was uh, tremendous uh, concern with color, although not very good color, and, uh, I mean, really kind of raucous. And um, what, it, what it had going for it was total sincerity, you know, no irony, no humor. He was trying to make something very beautiful, and it was very ludicrous. It was really a mess. And um, uh, I think, uh, I mean, he had, you know, come out of projecting and seeing, you know, to seeing what was actually there. And that took a while. And then he really, you know, became a powerfully visual person. But at that time, I would say that he was involved with a fantasy of beauty, you know. And it didn't matter what it looked like, actually, as long as it was something that he could hang his, <coughs> his fantasy on. Yeah. And I, I, I admired that. I mean, I thought it was ridiculous, but I really admired the, um, the, uh, the intensity 
of the, this inner vision. Long before flaming creatures, you have the photographs, which uh, now become a, you know, a, a, a play of a sense of what's really going on and the fantastic aspiration, you know, the dream. There's, there's a tremendous uh, tension between where people are and what kind of usually banal movie fantasies occupy their heads. The only other uh, creature I know of <coughs> that, uh, who was so permeated with persona that uh, the, the uh, smallest normal gesture became hilarious is W.C. Fields. He was swallowing personas at the time. He was really eating them up, gobbling personas, uh, you know, getting very fascinated with people and really doing them, absorbing them, making them part of, part of his repertoire. But uh, he, had, um, he had energy at the time. You know, he was manic depressive, but he had energy. And his long, you know, it was before drugs. I mean, Jack, the, I mean, he, he smoked cigarettes, but when I knew him, he didn't drink. He didn't, you know, none of us ever thought of drugs. We found, you know, the the, uh, the the hipster drug crowd ludicrous, you know, uh, very affected. Oh, did you say he was manic depression? Is that really No, uh, he uh, saved himself by um, his involvement in art. It could easily have been. Uh, same for myself, as a matter of fact. Yes. What happened to the film that he made? Do you know? Well, I hope it's been found uh, amongst the the stuff in the apartment. Uh, see, I see, I also had for some years a film he made called The, S- the Saracens, which he made at the age of 15 with his mother, you know, in a, in a, in a backyard in uh, Ohio or somewhere. Did you ever see that? You know, a beautiful light moment of film, you know, with his mother doing the costumes, his terrible mother that he hated so much, sewing all the costumes for people. He never spoke about her except uh, very disdainfully. I thought that Jack was trying to be his mother. I want to tell you about something about Bob's family, Bob Fleischner's family. Gary, Gary had the most dealings with them uh, after Bob died. And, uh, uh, you know, once again, you have to measure someone's, you know, where they get to from where they started. You know, was it at sea level? Was it below? You know, were they on top of a mountain? And what, a, what, a, what an undermining was his family. So Bob Fleischner was... Wild success, huge, astronomic success from uh, the kind of uh, pull down, uh, and that was a bad mother. That was a really bad, even Jewish. You know, they exist too. Really terrible. You know, somebody who would say to Bob, uh, um, "Oh, uh, you know, I'd be working on something," and say, "Oh, your art. You know, your art. Hmm. Like you can make art. You know." went on like that. Well, what do we do now? I want to do this thing called Black Space, and I think it's... Uh, I don't know, I think it's too much. Next, next retrospect, retrospective. Right. I mean, just like one other person, then we'll split. Anybody? Anybody that this is it? I, outside of standing in front of a crowd, I clam up. I'm only, I'm only candid here. This the Saracens, you were about to say what you were about. Oh, uh, I had it for some years, somehow. And then um, about 64, I think, uh, you know, I, going through my confusion, I found it and sent it back to Jack, hoping that he wouldn't destroy it. Because by this time, 64, 65, by this time, he'd, you know, the sudden fame had taken place and 
I was hoping that he wouldn't um, be embarrassed by it and destroy it. It was really a very, very wonderful little film. About uh, maybe 200 feet of 8 millimeter. So maybe 10 minutes long. Very ambitious little movie. You can see the clotheslines, you know, on the other side of the Casbah were clotheslines, American clotheslines. Beautiful. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.